United forecasts a profit miss on high fuel costs and war in the Middle East. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the local housing market, including how, among big cities, inventory of homes for sale has dropped the most in Chicago, and how big brokerages may upend the century-old way that we buy homes. There are class action lawsuits going on right now that are arguing that the National Association of Realtors and big brokerages have sort of artificially inflated home prices by... I'm hesitant to use the word requiring, but let's say by very strongly recommending that 6% commission split. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, October 19th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com banker. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC slash EHL. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How are you? I'm great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. As ever, so many things to get into. Let's start by talking about how, among other big cities, the inventory of homes for sale has dropped the most in Chicago. Tell me about it. This was uh, some interesting data that came from something called Resi Club. They were comparing inventory in September 2023 to, among other things, September 2019, which was the normal times prior to the pandemic and the boom and the uh, the some kind of a bust we've had since interest rates started going up. Uh, and so I compared, as I often do, Chicago to the other big cities. We had 63% fewer homes on the market in September 2023 than we had on the market in September 2019. Um, one of the things the writer Lance Lambert said is that for the most part, the biggest drop, the places with the biggest drops in inventory are the ones that are seeing big increases in prices. They included Philadelphia, Baltimore, and of course, as you and I have discussed, Chicago. Um, there are two reasons inventory is down really far. One is as interest rates have risen on mortgages, more than doubled from the threes to the sevens. Um, in the course of 2022 and 2023, a lot of people have been unwilling to put their home on the market, adding, unwilling to add to the inventory because I don't want to trade away my low rate mortgage for a high rate mortgage when I buy my next house. And the other is homes are selling, right? We have been talking about how, while not everybody is in the market these days, there are people in the market and homes are selling and at higher prices. So our inventory is down dramatically. It's at about 37% what it was in um, September 2019. Our inventory was also down dramatically compared to the same time in 2020 and in 2021. It's not the biggest drop compared to September 2022. And part of the reason uh, I, I gleaned from Lance Lambert's article is that a lot of the biggest log jams in inventory were in places like 
Miami, Seattle, Phoenix, the places that were really coming down fast. And those log jams had developed by this time last year. So their declines in inventory are something else. They're a return to normalcy, people pulling things off the market because they realize, ooh, this market has changed so much. Um, so we're not, we're not down the most in, uh, since 2022, but we are since 1920 and 21. And that's just another example of just how vigorous our market has been because we have, again, not only inventory going down because people don't want to sell, but also going down because so many people want to buy. I'm thinking back to a conversation that we had about downtown condos a long time ago, maybe two or three years ago, and you're measuring inventory in terms of months. Do you have a similar number for this now, for this kind of latest stage? From this report, I don't, no. But uh, in most of our neighborhoods and suburbs, we're well below, we're below four months inventory. The old rule of thumb, and everything has changed in the past few years, the old rule of thumb was four to six months inventory was balanced. If there were about enough homes on the market to sell at the current pace in four to six months, that was considered balanced. More than six was inventory that was too high. Uh, below four was inventory that was too low. We've been below four since 2020. Uh, most of our areas, there are pockets where we have six, seven, eight months, but for the most part, we've been running below four months, even uh, as low as one or two months for a very long time. Noted. Well, that's a whole thing, but yeah. gives us lots to talk about. So let's now talk about how big brokerage firms might change the century-old way that we even buy houses in the first place. This is something that's been going on for a few years, some class action lawsuits Okay. now going on right now and in the next week or so in courtrooms in Kansas City. Essentially what happened is people started to say, well, why should real estate agents have this 6% commission rule where 6% comes out of the transaction and uh, is divided between the agent for the buyer and the agent for the seller? Not an ironclad rule but a very common standard. And uh, one of the things that people learn when they, especially when they're first time home buyers is you, the buyer don't pay anything because all of that comes out of the seller's proceeds. So it feels like it's free to buy a house. Uh, over the course of time, um, as buyer's agency has become less crucial because I tend to do most of my, as a buyer, I tend to do most of my home search online because there, all the listings are there and I can look for what has three bedrooms and is near the school I'm looking for and that sort of thing. Over time, it has started to look like maybe that half-half split is not necessarily what should happen. And it also has been a problem that people want to offer a discount, want to be discount brokerages. So I'm summarizing as quickly as possible to, to make this fit into the time we have for a podcast. People who want to go into it further um, can read up on it extensively, but there are class action lawsuits going on right now uh, that are arguing that the National Association of Realtors and big brokerages have sort of artificially inflated home prices by, I, I'm hesitant to use the word requiring, but let's say by very strongly recommending that 6% commission split. A couple of big brokerages have pulled out uh, of the lawsuits and they have said, as well as making these multi-million dollar settlements, we're going to stop telling our agents that you need to be, one, a National Association of Realtors member, and two, 
charging that 6%. We're going to change our business practices to break down that sort of chokehold that the 6% rule appears to have on the industry. Emphasis on appears, because one of the things the National Association of Realtors has said is, yeah, you know, there is this rule that it goes back to 1913. I said in my story, it goes back to 1913 that the listing agent pledges to split the commission with the buying agent. But what the National Association of Realtors has said is, yeah, you can split it. You can say out of that 6%, the buyer's agent gets 0% or the buyer's agent gets 1% or whatever it is you want to say. It is not a requirement. It's just very strongly encouraged, that 6% split. First of all, these two big brokerages have pulled out. Redfin also pulled out. Uh, of the National Association of Realtors. The National Association of Realtors has said, we're still on it, man. We are going to court. We're going to defend this. We believe that if you change these rules, we'll go back to uh, their general counsel or one of their legal staffs was quoted recently saying, we'd be back in the wild west of the 19th century. Again, this idea of splitting the commission goes back to 1913, right after the 19th century, when the National Association of Realtors, in a former name, was organized in Chicago. This commission rule is based here, essentially. So they've said they're going to defend it. We're, we need to watch these cases and see what happens. But it may be that in uh, the near-term future, the 6% rule really completely goes away. And one of the effects would be that home prices would come down a little, not a lot. But if you're not charging 6%, let's just say that the standard is 3%, that uh, provides space for home prices to come down. And so you mentioned lawsuits. Do you have a sense of the timeline on them? No, they've just gotten started. Okay. So it'll be a minute. It's likely to go on for a while. Right. As lawsuits do. All right. Well, we will revisit that topic in a future episode for sure. Um, so talk to me now about Water Tower Place and how that mall space could just not be retail. Is that the most fascinating? I was so surprised. So there are eight floors of mall at Water Tower. There also is hotel, condos. Those have nothing to do with this situation. Over the past couple of years, Water Tower, like a lot of other malls and like a lot of other retail settings in the city, has suffered quite a bit. There's a large amount of vacancy. And as the commercial real estate reporters for Cranes have reported over the course of the past few years, um, the mall changed hands. The owner of the mall essentially walked away because of the size of the debt. The receiver, MetLife, put five of the eight floors of the mall on the market. And then what we learned late last week is that they're also saying, you know, you could lease those to doctors, to all sorts of non-retail uses, which is to say eight floors of mall could quickly become three floors of mall, five floors of something else. That's been an eight-story mall since 1975. It's, it's really sort of the, it may not be the first in the, in the country. It is certainly the first in Chicago and one of the first nationwide. It's the granddaddy of vertical malls, of downtown malls. It was designed to bring people back to shopping in the city when they had all leaked out to malls in the suburbs in the years after World War II. 1970s developers are saying, let's pull, pull all that shopping back in. And I found old newspaper articles that said, boy, is it happening? Where these people are coming from is the suburban, where the shoppers are coming from is the suburban malls. The majority of them are coming from the suburban malls, not from uh, the area around the water tower. It was huge. I mean, it's like an iconic 
piece of a lot of people's experience from the 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, but it may now be cut down to smaller than half of what it was. And to me, that's kind of a piece of the bigger conversation around kind of what is the future of that mag mile shopping area with so much retail vacancy? Absolutely. Does it get reimagined? I know that topic has come up a few times. Cranes has reported on it a few times of, you know, people kind of imagining what else it could be. Is it a more experiential district? Is it more theater? Is it more dining? Like what that could be to me, if water tower suddenly is not this kind of beacon of retail, then it almost feels like it doesn't have a choice but to evolve a bit. Oh, I would agree. I would totally agree. One of the things that interested me is uh, you could turn these floors into residential. Yeah. And there's a good reason for that. The downtown condo market is suffering. People are still concerned about crime and other things, on not only on Michigan Avenue, but in many parts of the city. But I was thinking about the comparison to the Bloomingdale's building, another vertical mall just a couple blocks away. It was built with some floors of condos. And then several years later, when some floors for office went empty, they were turned into condos. This is years ago. This is when the condo market and downtown Chicago were very different than they are now. It was in the 21st century. It was in the 2006, 2009 range. I don't remember when that conversion was made. But at that time, oh, we've got a bunch of empty floors of formerly office. Let's make them condos. And they sold them. Nobody has suggested making five floors of the Water Tower Mall into residential because, you know, we have enough of a backlog of properties to sell in the near north. Well, it'll be fascinating to see what ends up happening. Like what what do these what do new leases yield in that space? Because that'll uh, no doubt be so influential on what the future of the Magmile area is in future years. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we'll be talking about this for a while. All right. Well, it's been a minute since we've talked about a multi-million dollar listing in Lake Geneva. Yeah. Although not really. I think we've kind of been on a streak. (laughs) I think it's been 45 seconds. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. So let's talk about another. And and it's not entirely surprising because there was an $11 million listing that went under contract very quickly. We saw a $16.5 million listing in Lake Geneva. That market has just been insane. And so now there's a new one that came on the market last week, $14 million. This is in Fontana, which is that sort of west and southwest end of Geneva Lake. Beautiful building, beautiful house, I should say. Built in 2011, very sort of Cape Cod Hamptons style. Shingle siding, lots of roof lines. It's really cool. I don't know how much lakefront it has. The listing doesn't say. It's on two acres. Really beautiful, on the market for $14 million. And as I said, there was a sale at 16. We've been talking about these uh, the last couple of years. Lake Geneva has has outstripped the Chicago market easily. Their highest price sale of the year is 16.5 million. The Chicago area's highest price sale of the year is 12.5 million. Years ago, I never would have imagined that Lake Geneva would be out ahead price-wise of the Winnetka's Lake Forests, Lincoln Parks, Gold Coast, parts of Chicago. It seemed like a lot of eyes were suddenly on Lake Geneva with the sale of the Driehaus home, which was, I believe, $36 million. Was that what it- Right around in there. Traded for? It was a lot. It was quite a bit more than you know the $14 million that we're talking about now. And it seems like since then, that's kind of like set off so many sales. Was it building up and we were just not really paying attention to Lake Geneva and suddenly we were after Driehaus? Or did that kind of- Was that sort of the beginning of this? Uh, I think the beginning of it came earlier than that in, I think, 2019 or 2018. 
I reported there had suddenly been a string of sales over $6 million, which just really hadn't been happening. I think what's going on is what's going on most recently is people have figured out that with remote work, being in Lake Geneva is real easy. I can drive uh, in, drive to the train or drive all the way into the city on those few days I have to be here, be in the city. And if I'm in one of those financial businesses, I may not even need to get into the city at all. Why not live in Lake Geneva? Um, so I think that's that's the most recent reason, but it was building in years prior because uh, it's so easy to get to Lake Geneva, especially if you live in the Northwest suburbs, if you live in the like Arlington Heights range, Lake Geneva is right over there. Um, it's real easy to get there. Uh, just as if you live in the south, on the south side, it's so easy to get to Northwest Indiana, New Buffalo, et cetera. And so I think as, as people's grip on the office has loosened, they've gotten more interested in Lake Geneva. And the other thing that's happened is there has been a lot of construction of these new, totally fabulous mansions taking down the old ones. So as somebody who wants to buy something I can move right into, in particular, my second home, because I don't want to have a lot of headaches having to build that. I just want to sit on the dock and, you know, drink a margarita. I think a lot of people have have realized now's my chance because you already did the hard work. You built the fabulous new house. Now I can move right in. Yeah. How interesting. Well, we have a couple of uh, other lake adjacent homes, a north side in Edgewater and one on the South Shore. Let's talk about the one on the South Shore. So this is a, actually a site. It's it's a it's a cleared site after the demolition of this historic house that once occupied it. What's going to happen to the site now? Well, so that's the problem. We don't know. This is uh, pretty upsetting when you think of South Shore and other South and West Side neighborhoods that have had a, or that had a lot of demolitions in years past and have the scars in vacant lots. This is so this is 67 to 40 South South Shore. This is if you're passing coming down the lakefront through that golf course, just as you come around the bend uh, from the Jackson Park golf course, you come around the bend to the South Shore Golf Course and then the South Shore Country Club. This is right there. So this is essentially the front door of South Shore. Um, some nice high rises, some great old historical buildings, and now an empty scar. Uh, this was sort of a surprise. It, this is a, it, it's a, it's an amazing spot because from this site, if you have a multi-story building, the people on the upper stories are going to be looking right across the trees of the South Shore Country Club out to the lake. So a prime spot. And over the course of about 15 years, people have proposed uh, successively a 30-story building, then a 19-story building, then a seven-story building. None of those got built. Smaller and smaller all the time. Nothing got built. So then the current owner buys it in 2019 from a foreclosing lender and announces nothing about what they're going to build there. As you can imagine, I've been calling Last spring, we first started talking about this house on here because uh, they were subject to a demolition delay. The mm -hmm. city said, well, there might be some historical value that prevents demolition. The demolition delay expired. They demolished the house in September, but they have not announced what there's there's no permit with the city. There's no ad. There's nothing that says, here's what we're building there. And like I said, I've called. I've called everybody whose fingers are anywhere on that site. Yeah, They're not answering. Um, and I, you know, one real estate agent who actually lives in South Shore said it's kind of an insult to have an empty lot with no plans right at the front door of South Shore. Uh, hmm. So I'm hoping that at some point they file plans 
I mean, it may be, I don't know this, this is a theory, they cleared it so that you, the buyer of the site, have fewer hurdles to get over and you can start on your high rise or mid rise. I don't know that. They may anytime soon say we're building two houses on the site or it could sit fallow for years. And and I don't like that. Like I say, every couple of episodes, folks, return Dennis Rodkin's call. That should be a t-shirt. We should have merch, Dennis. Yeah, that's, just that says, would be good. Good podcast merch. Please call me back. Call Dennis back. I would wear that. We could start. We could start a hashtag campaign. Hashtag call Rodkin back. I'm for that. I'm I, totally into it. I like it mostly because we just you know we, we're just dying to know. But what a mystery. Well, and in this case, I mean, it actually it it has some importance because sure this is a neighborhood that for decades, like a lot of other neighborhoods, as I said, on the south and west sides carried the burden of empty lots. And this is this is like right when you walk in the front door, here's an empty lot, mm-hmm. newly empty lot. We'll have to revisit that one on a future episode too. Keeping along our lake theme, let's jump up to Edgewater and talk about uh, one of noted prairie architect Walter Burley Griffin's landmark twin homes in Edgewater that is for sale. These are so nice. So uh, Walter Burley Griffin who uh, worked under Frank Lloyd Wright, is building some really interesting prairie-style homes on his own in the early 1900s in Chicago, eventually leaves because he wins a contest to design the capital city of Australia. And he and his wife, who was also an architect, Marion Mahoney Griffin, moved to Australia. They uh, work on the capital. They build a subdivision in uh, of Sydney. They end up building a lot of buildings in India. So he goes on to have a lot of prominence but early in his career in 1908, uh, when he's only been out of Frank Lloyd Wright's studio for a few years, he designs these really interesting twins on Magnolia in Edgewater. It's these two charming prairie style homes, each sort of a long finger stretching toward the street wrapped in glass on three sides. So the, the key element here is that you've got glass on two sides of you. If you're sitting in, the, in this room, You've got glass behind you and in front of you. So you really are essentially sitting outside. And then there's a third smaller side that is glass and great prairie detailing, the the wood banding, the overhanging roof, this great two-sided fireplace. It's a great house. And once again, there are two of them. This couple bought one of them, the one on the north in the pair, about 15 years ago from somebody who had owned it for about a half a century most of the historical details still there. They came in, they did some of the things you have to do. They put in a new kitchen. They tried to make it sympathetic to the old look, put on a new roof, put on copper gutters, but essentially kept it as this 1908 piece. Their kids are grown. They're selling it. Did I say they're asking 759,000 for it? It's so nice. I mean, it's really what I would like to see if I could go back in time is so a developer a butcher who was a developer got um, Walter Burley Griffin to design these. I would like to take that model and just build it again and again and again down the block. Like when you look at our bungalow belt or a row of two flats, you see this beautiful architectural rhythm going down the street. Those glass fingers with the prairie style roof line going down the block, two, four, six, eight, 10, 20 of them down the block, I think would be spectacular. Right. Not that these two on their own aren't really cool. I would just love to have seen it replicated. Yeah, more the merrier on, on that front for sure. Um, the more the prairier. Oh my God, why did I not get that? 
the more the prairier. See, this merch makes itself, Dennis. That's another t-shirt. That's That's very excellent. true. It okay. does. All right. We, we will talk with the boss people about that, about podcast merch. Yeah, I think the answer to that one is no. It's going to be an absolutely not, <laughs> but I support it. Everyone head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see photos of these cool houses and, and you can envision a line of them going down the block and, and the more the prairier, as Dennis said. All right. Well, um, speaking of noted architects, a house by noted mid-century architect, Edward Humrick, has sold for the first time since it was built in 1955. That's pretty interesting. Is that amazing? Wow. Yeah. So the couple who uh, commissioned the house, uh, the wife died in 2016. The husband died this year, 2023. So the estate sold the house. They had held on to it since 1955. Their last name, uh, I, I practiced it, but I'm going to get it wrong. It was Maliaric, um, Milan and Gloria Maliaric. They, in the mid-50s, took this piece of land in a wooded area that was west of Lake Forest, um, and they got Ed Humrick to design them a house. Humrick, uh, we talk about him a lot because he uh, built something like 40 houses in Riverwoods, which is near this site. He also did houses in the south suburbs. He was he was sort of a great modernist home builder. And they called him and said, do one for us. And he, so there's this line from him that I've read before where he says a house shouldn't be uh, distant from its setting. It should actually be a piece of its setting. It should feel like a rock within its setting. And when you look at this one, you see that because he used so much glass. Uh, there are not only exterior walls that have glass, but there are some interior so that if you're two rooms away from the outer wall, you're still seeing all the way through glass, one wall of glass interior and one out. How pretty. It's so cool. The The agent said that when she first walked in, it was February, it was a snowstorm. And she said it was like being in a snow globe because there's so much glass around you. Oh, I bet. And so you can imagine they would hold on to the house from 1955 until 2023. So they put it on the market. Uh, once again, uh, the, 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 a wife had died several years ago. The husband died this year. Their children put it on the market. They asked $500,000. It needs updating. Um, they got six offers and they sold for $535,000. It sold very fast over the asking price. And I did confirm this was not bought by a developer who's going to tear it down. Uh, it's end users who are going to do some of the things it needs, new kitchen, et cetera and enjoy living in that snow globe, that 1950s snow globe. Yeah, it's like a tree house when there's leaves and it's a snow globe in the winter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's a it's an interesting setting. It so it would have been it would have felt rural back then. Now there are hotels and corporate offices and things within reach. You're still in a wooded setting, but you're not quite as remote as you would have been then. I mean, you can get right on the tollway, you can get to um, the Vernon Hills shopping mall and things like that, but um, they would have been living pretty far out in 1955, and then everything sort of expanded toward them. Everything was gravitating to that very cool house. That's what was happening. Yeah, totally. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, a couple more houses to talk about before we wrap. One of them is a, a graystone in Wicker Park that has been modernized, but has kind of held some of the pieces of its past. Tell me about this. You know, I was really interested to look at this one because, um, it, so it's an old two flat that was turned into a single family home. Sometimes when people do that, what you get is nice old historical facade and everything new inside. But they didn't do that. They First of all, they have a really remarkable gray stone facade and they didn't mess with it, which is good. But inside, when converting the two flat 
into a single family home, one of the things they did that just really shows you that they cared about the past is, um, so a two flat would have two apartments, which would mean a dining room, a living room, a kitchen on each of the two floors. So on the second floor, which are now bedrooms, the dining room, the living room became bedrooms. They kept the ornamental plaster ceilings. They kept the old historical fireplace. So that what I said in the story is one lucky child in this family Mm -hmm. is sleeping under this wonderful old ornamental plaster ceiling, the kind of thing you see, well, the kind of thing you see in the living room right downstairs. The parents' bedroom is in an addition, uh, and they have something more modern, but the kids are sleeping under this great old uh, work done by tradesmen in 1907. The other thing they did uh, that that I think is really interesting is uh, there's an old carriage house out back. It had a hayloft. It was originally built for actual carriages, later housed, uh, housed cars, and they turned that into their gym. So they've got like a two-story gym. Oh, cool. Uh, and I, I didn't see it, but they said, you know, professional grade, that sort of thing. And um, it's just another nice way to say, we're keeping the old. We're putting it to a new use. You know, nobody's lifting bales of hay up into the attic, but we're still doing a lot of lifting in this space. Right. Um, and I thought they did a really nice job of sort of keeping their eye on the past while doing, while making it work for the present. It's also on a really big lot. It's on a 48 by 163 lot, which is huge for the city of Chicago. They're asking over 4.9 million uh, for this. It's a six bedroom house at this point with a gym out back and a nice patio. Um, it's quite a property and, and that price is in line. Again, head to chicagobusiness.com and you can check out photos of all the things we're talking about today. One more house I want to discuss with you. We we had talked about this before. So Alinea co-owner Nick Kokonis had kind of made his own plan, his own method or formula or whatever you want to call it to try to sell his house. Fast forward to now, a few months later, and he has put a price on it. So has he changed and is offering this as an option or how, what does he, what's he doing? Well, let, okay, so let's put the price out there. It's $6.84 million. It's a remarkable property in Old Town that I've been writing, writing about for years since before he owned it. Um, two uh, 19th century houses combined by a glass bridge that you don't see from the street. A third 19th century building out back. Really spectacular renovation, um, paying homage to Edgar Miller, who was a, a great architect artist in the early part of the 20, 20th century spectacular property. Walked around it with Nick Kokonis back in May. And he said, so I'm doing this my way. Um, Not going to have an agent, not going to publish an asking price. He said at the time, you know what I paid for it. It was in the three and a half million dollar range before doing some renovations. And the way he had it set up is an agent who brings him a buyer uh, gets a commission. And the higher the sale price they bring him, the more commission the agent gets. This is the way he has sold uh, not only his and his wife's own houses, but some relatives' houses. He's been on podcasts talking about it, and other people have done it. He talked about how you don't really need an agent to come in and show people around. He was available to show people around, and then they could say, here's how much I'll offer. And, you know, obviously, if you say uh, $800,000, he's going to say, get out of here. You need some zeros, that (laughs) sort of thing. But um, the higher the price somebody brought him, the higher the commission there would be. Well, last week he put, he actually went with an agent, which he had said he wouldn't do. And he went with a price, 6.84 million. What he told me is 
He's got some other things going on. He's got some projects in California he's working on, still living in Chicago, still going to live in Chicago long term. But what he said is, I don't really have the time to show people around and do all this negotiating. So what Jeff Lowe, the now agent for the property, told me is, you know, luxury homes generally sell through luxury agents. He, you know, had respect for what Kokonis had tried. It hasn't worked. Some time has passed. Kokonis doesn't have time. So now he's going the conventional route. Price, agent, both established. Right, right. So we've kind of, we started by talking about how earlier in the podcast, how maybe home buying is changing. And here we are about to close out the podcast and kind of talking about this other method. Maybe those two things might meet in the middle. Yeah, everything sort of converges toward the conventional way to do it. You're right. Right. And, you know, I said I had two more houses to talk to you about, but there's actually one more I want to talk to you about. This is uh, the home of Chris Ware. Oh, right. Cartoonist, graphic novels artist, New Yorker cover artist, and his wife, school teacher Marnie Ware. They have put their restored Oak Park house on the market. Tell me about that. Yeah, I was surprised to see that they were the sellers because in 2017, I wrote about them buying a very nice house in Riverside, which is not far from Oak Park. Uh, and it, as it turns out, I learned from their agent that they had a lot of renovations to do in Riverside. So until that was done, they held on to the Oak Park House. Um, what Chris Ware then told me, I didn't talk to him, but he did email me. So we don't have to send him a please call Dennis t-shirt. He, <laughs> he actually responded. What he said is he loves Oak Park. They've lived in Oak Park since the early 2000s. They bought this house and their daughter grew up there. It's been sort of an inspiration for a book he did that uh, sort of is based on her. Um, he did some of his New Yorker covers were Oak Park, Oak Park oriented. There's one, uh, not this house, but a house in Oak Park featured in his drawing. He said it was really a great place to work and they love these older homes, but now putting it on the market because again, they've, they've got this new house in Riverside. This is such a nice house. This one that they've put on the market. Built in 1906 by a very prolific builder in Oak Park and the Austin neighborhood right next door. My favorite thing, there's a lot inside, but it's got these great tapered porch columns that just say this house is different from all the houses that have porch columns that are straight up and down. Really pretty. Um, inside, one of the things they did is, as a lot of people do, they needed to put in a modern kitchen, but they were very careful to try and make it look like not just inspired by, but look like a kitchen that would have been there in 1906. And you have to look at the photos to see that. Um, and they also finished out the attic. There was a drawing, a, a studio for him where he drew. It's just a really pretty house. And it's for sale, did we say, at $720,000. There you have it. All right. Well, Dennis, what is coming up in the week ahead? You know, Amy, there's a really interesting uh, preservation project going on in Gary, Indiana, having to do with... Um, two pretty prolific black home builders. And it's it's a very interesting story. Cool. All right. Well, I will meet you right back here this time next week and we'll talk all about it. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Governor Pritzker takes his reproductive access fight national. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10.
This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Bloomberg reported that Chicago-based United Airlines is projecting a fourth-quarter profit that falls short of analysts' estimates as the carrier faces pressure from a suspension of flights to Tel Aviv, as well as higher jet fuel costs. United said Tuesday in a statement that adjusted profit will be 180 a share if Tel Aviv flights are grounded through October 31st and 150 if the ban lasts through the end of 2023. That compares to an average 210 from analyst estimates compiled by Bloomberg, which also noted that U.S. carriers suspended service to Tel Aviv earlier this month amid the outbreak of war, and United has said it won't restart flights until conditions allow. United has the most service to Tel Aviv among U.S.-based airlines, accounting for about 2% of the carrier's annual capacity, with flights from San Francisco, Washington, Chicago, and Newark, New Jersey. United operates 28 weekly flights between Tel Aviv and the U.S. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that airlines have been hit by a more than 25 percent jump in jet fuel prices since June. United has said it hasn't been able to recover the high costs through fare increases as quickly as in the past, which is normally a one- to three-month lag. The airline forecast Tuesday that fuel prices will increase to an average of 3.28 a gallon in the fourth quarter from 2.95 in the third. United said that fourth quarter revenue will climb between 9 and 10.5 percent, while analysts expect a 9.7 percent increase. Cost to fly each seat per mile, which is a gauge of efficiency, will increase 3.5 percent to 5 percent in the quarter, while capacity will climb 14 percent to 15.5 percent, depending on further events in the Middle East. A group of 12 U.S. carriers is expected to report a $4.3 billion operating profit in the third quarter, with $4.09 billion of that generated by the three largest airlines, according to Michael Lendberg, a Deutsche Bank analyst who spoke with Bloomberg. The cohort, American United and Delta, will have a combined revenue of $58 billion. United had an adjusted third quarter profit of 365 a share compared with analysts' average expectation of 334. Revenue was 14.5 billion while analysts expected 14.4 billion. Adjusted pre-tax margin was 10.8%. Cost to fly each seat per mile, which is a gauge of efficiency, will increase 3.5% to 5% in the quarter, while capacity will climb 14% to 15.5%, depending on further events in the Middle East. Former Deputy Mayor of Chicago Samir Mayakar has been named to lead the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the University of Chicago. Crane's John Pletz reported that Mayakar was a startup CEO who founded a clean tech company while at Northwestern University before he joined former Mayor Lori Lightfoot's administration as Deputy Mayor for Economic Development. Mayakar has crisscrossed between the private sector, government, and academia during his career. He was a staffer on Barack Obama's presidential campaign and served in the White House before getting an MBA at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Business and launching a startup. The Polsky Center, which helps incubate and fund startups launched by students and faculty, is one of the University of Chicago's best-known programs. Mayakar, who starts as the Polsky Center's managing director next month, also knows his way around universities. He's a former member of Northwestern's Board of Trustees, who also headed the Alumni Association. 
The Polsky Center was funded by clean tech entrepreneur Michael Polsky, an alum of U of C's Booth School of Business. It runs the New Venture Challenge, which is a business plan competition started at Booth that has produced successful startups like Grubhub and Braintree. The center also supports small businesses on the South Side. A federal judge has ordered the government to return another $8.6 million to Outcome Health founder Rishi Shah as he awaits sentencing later this year on fraud charges. U.S. District Judge Thomas Durkin's order brings the total returned to Shah since his conviction in April to $13.4 million. The judge previously ordered prosecutors to turn over $4.8 million. John Pletz reported that the ruling gives Shah more money to hire attorneys for appeal, although it's not clear how much additional money he has beyond what the government froze. However, it also could provide additional funds for the government to pursue as restitution at sentencing in December. As Pletz has previously reported, federal prosecutors seized $23.9 million from Shah and his co-founder and co-defendant Shraddha Agarwal when they were charged with fraud in 2019 in connection with raising nearly $1 billion from venture capitalists and lenders for their healthcare advertising company, Outcome Health. They personally received about $69 million in dividend payouts, much of which went into a variety of investment funds. After the convictions, the feds moved to seize the assets. Shaw challenged it, arguing that the government had frozen funds that weren't traceable to the fraud at Outcome Health. Pletz noted that prosecutors admit that they inadvertently froze some funds that Shaw and Agarwal invested before the fraud. But as Pletz also noted, it also gets a lot more complicated because the value of many of those investments soared during the massive run-up in startup valuations between 2020 and 2022. In one instance, a $1.2 million investment is now worth $22.3 million. However, just $550,000 of the original investment can be connected to the fraud at Outcome Health. And that $550,000 is now worth about $10.2 million, according to court filings. Shah's attorneys and prosecutors are still fighting over whether the government is entitled to not only the initial proceeds of Shah and Agarwal's payouts when they were frozen, but also the appreciation since then. And as Pletz also pointed out, the money is at issue because not only are Shah and Agarwal facing prison time when they're sentenced, but prosecutors have also said they will seek $400 million in restitution from the pair. Crane's John Aspland reported that Governor J.B. Pritzker is taking his efforts to protect and expand access to abortion to the national stage by launching an organization called Think Big America. The organization will support initiatives that expand reproductive access around the nation in much the same way his administration has done in Illinois, according to a press release issued this week. Asplund noted that Governor Pritzker, whose interest in running for president at some point is an open secret in political circles, is currently the sole funder of the 501c4 issue advocacy organization, according to Politico. Think Big America will focus first on ballot measures to protect abortion rights in Nevada, Ohio, and Arizona. Pritzker said in the press release, quote, Think Big America is dedicated to ensuring the fundamental right of reproductive choice for individuals everywhere, regardless of their state of residence, religion, race, or socioeconomic status. 
The press release also says that the focus of the organization also goes beyond the issue of abortion, saying, quote, zealots led by Donald Trump are eliminating access to abortion, banning books, discriminating against black and brown Americans and other marginalized communities and denying science, making life harder for working families. Find more reporting on this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.